The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo. She is best known as the media literacy education maven with 30 years experience as a media literacy educator, visionary, and strategist who has trained thousands of teachers, students, child care professionals, and parents to understand and harness the power of media. She is the author of a 2002 groundbreaking article titled The ABCs of Media Literacy, and she has earned a reputation as one of the few people in the United States advocating for and creating media literacy education that is developmentally appropriate for early childhood. Dr. Rogo founded Insiders Educational Consulting to help people learn from media and one another. And she has a new edublog titled Tune In Next Time, Media Literacy Education Musings, which focuses on how we use questions and how we teach inquiry to examine the media we create and consume. Dr. Rogo has developed curriculum materials and professional development workshops for many PBS children's series. She is also the co-author of the National Association for Media Literacy Education seminal document, Core Principles of Media Literacy Education in the U.S., and the Teacher's Guide to Media Literacy, Critical Thinking in a Multimedia World. Dr. Rogo was the founding president of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, which is where I first met her. Welcome, Dr. Rogo. Thanks. Great to be with you. You've got quite a resume, and that was just a fraction of all of the things that you've done to better help everyone, not just young people, but everyone think critically. And I thought what we'd do before we get into the belly of this media literacy issue is to just ask you, how did you become aware of media literacy? How did you get started in this field? Almost by accident, I was a historian and a women's studies professor and started just teaching about things like the representation of women in media over time, and that kind of morphed. And I'd always been involved in education, so then I started looking at education, and somehow it all came together, and I ended up as president of Namely. So. Yeah, well, it's um, interesting, because I discovered media literacy also quite by accident, I found an article in a University of Missouri College newspaper about Roy Fox, and he had written about how children perceive TV commercials. And I had been working on issues regarding childhood obesity for the largest part of my career. And I thought, wow, media must be this invisible hand that is influencing children's food choices and they may not be aware of it. And that's how I got to the first NAMLY meeting. So that's where I first met you. It is indeed media now so much, and so much more than when you and I started in this, but so much a part of our lives that it is kind of like the fish-in-water phenomenon where there's just so much surrounding us now that sometimes we even forget that it's there and it's media. Exactly. So how do you define media literacy when you're talking to a novice audience? So I don't actually do a definition of the term. 
I try to explain it instead in terms of what we're after. So when we talk about media literacy education, what we're trying to do is to help people develop two things, habits of inquiry and skills of expression, and tying those specifically to being lifelong learners, critical and creative thinkers, effective communicators, and active citizens. Mm -hmm. And to do that in the context of living in a digital world. So by habits of inquiry, we mean asking relevant questions and knowing how to find the answers. And doing that as kind of a filter through which we see the entire world. So it's almost automatic. You just do it all the time of all the media that's around. And then skills of expression, because now we live in user-generated content. I mean, we wouldn't think of somebody as being kind of traditionally literate if they couldn't write. So there's also skills of expression in terms of how we communicate with others in this digital world. And it's the combination of those two things Mm -hmm. that really is what we're talking about. Yeah, and I like the way each of us came to this topic from different perspectives. And what this teaches me is that no matter what our area We need to be media literate, whether we're talking about how women are portrayed, how people of different racial and cultural backgrounds are seen in the media, whether or not we're talking about a political campaign. Because we swim in media, we have to have these skills of inquiry. And I don't know, you probably have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in classrooms in America, but it seems that the more we are driven to teach to a test, I'm worried that we're losing the time teachers have in the classroom to teach those critical skills of inquiry. You know, I think it's a concern because so much of the teaching to the test is about rote memorization and not thinking, but actually Cindy Scheib and I, who my co-author with the Teacher's Guide to Media Literacy, have a full chapter saying, sounds great, but I don't have time. And what we address there is this very thing, that in fact there are lots and lots of things that we can do that kind of tweak what we're already doing as educators without taking lots of extra time. This doesn't have to be a whole separate topic. It's more about kind of the way we approach topics with kids. So, for example, instead of just lecturing them and saying, this is what I want you to think, we help them learn to ask the questions that will allow them to come to independent thought and conclusions on their own. And when we do it that way, then they're able to go out and analyze everything, even all the stuff we don't have time to cover. Mm -hmm. You gave a great example of this in a webinar that you gave where you show, it could be a teacher or a parent, it's when we read to children and we ask them questions about what they think might happen next. And you say, just in that scenario, if we just add a question like, how did you know that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? That starts that inquiry process. Right. Because it helps kids get in the habit of attaching opinion to evidence. And even if a three-year-old isn't going to do that in a very sophisticated way, but that's what we talk about when we talk about habits of inquiry. We're starting to develop that habit. So we don't have to wait until they're you know, sophisticated enough to, I don't know, analyze a Toni Morrison novel. We can start very early on just instilling these kinds of things of when we give opinions, they are based on evidence. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to navigate the media these days. 
I remember reading an article that came across one of the media literacy listservs. I'm sure you're on it, too, where it showed that when children are going on the Internet and they do a Google search for a topic of interest, they think that the first response, the first link that comes up is the one that they'll go to. How do we help children and adults navigate the Internet searches when we're trying to find information? So what we need to do is when we look at skills, I always think about this because we're talking about media literacy, and I always think of it as a literacy. So I always try to parallel it with learning to read the way we learn to read print, the way we read books, that we teach kids clues to kind of help them navigate well, all right, you're going to see a topic sentence, and that's going to help you know, or you're going to see a header, and that's going to help you know what you're about to read next or things like that. Well, there are those kinds of clues that we can routinely teach in dealing with all kinds of digital stuff. So people need to know some basics about doing Google searches, and they need to know that Google isn't the only search engine in the world. Right. And I'm surprised when I do workshops at how often – I always introduce the search engine DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo doesn't track you. Google does. So you can use DuckDuckGo instead of using Google. It gives you a different kind of result because it doesn't have information about you that it's assuming. It knows what you want or what you need or what you like. So we can teach people things like how Google sells slots just so they know that the stuff that comes up up top often is bought. It's not necessarily what most people are using. And then we can teach them tools that you can use. So things like if you're trying to determine, all right, is this a good site? Should I click on this one or not? Is it going to give me the information I want? One of the tricks that a lot of people don't know is that Google has a tool that allows you to see who else has linked to that site. So if you use brackets, so put this inside brackets, you type the word link and then a colon and then you type in your URL. And if you do that inside a bracket in a Google search, it will give you a list of who else is linked to this site. And you can tell from that list whether this tends to be a credible site or not. Wow. That's powerful information. That gets to two pieces of media literacy that I wanted to cover. One is core principles and key questions. So this idea that in the core principles, that media is made by someone and that there is always bias in every media source. I remember learning that at one of the media literacy conferences, and that was an aha moment for me. You know, I was thinking that there were completely objective news sources until I realized that one core principle that there's always somebody who is crafting a message and that person or people who are crafting it, come with a set of values. Right. And I think it's important to hear that as kind of an open-ended thing. So the way I teach it is this, that the basic thing we all need to know about media is that all media are socially constructed. And what we mean by that are people make media, people who make media make choices. Because media makers make choices, no media are neutral. And all people interpret media through the lens of their own experiences, which means you and I can look at the same piece of media and we can interpret it differently and neither of us is necessarily wrong. It's the experience you have if you've ever gone to a movie with somebody 
and you come away and you say, oh, that was great, and they say, that was the worst thing I've ever seen. And neither of you are wrong. It was your experience and your prior experience that, and who you are that helped you interpret that. But I, I think the important piece of that is people make media for all kinds of reasons, and I think there's been a tendency in the past to just look at the negative reasons or the you know, people who want to mislead or who want to sell. And the truth is, yeah, that may be true. That may or may not make media credible or not. But we want to look at the full picture. We want to be asking complex questions about this. So there are lots of reasons that people make media, especially today, because we want people to think of the media that they make and put online as they are media creators. And we want them to be thoughtful about that. So if you have a Facebook page, you're a media producer. You know, you've created media online. You're representing yourself. And I like to, when I use the word representing, I like to have people think of it, if you can imagine that written out in your head, and put a dash between the re, the R-E, and the presenting. It's literally media. The definition of media is that it represents information. It puts something between you and the person who you're communicating with. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Faith Rogo, best known as the media literacy education maven. And we are talking about the power of media, how to harness and navigate the media in which we swim. Dr. Rogo, do you think that we should talk about the core principles and key questions? Are there parts of those that you want to pull out at this point? Sure. I won't quote from the document. You can go to namely, N-A-M-L-E dot net and look up the core principles and, and folks can read them there if they're specifically interested in those. I think what they get to is kind of more important. And one of the, the kind of constructs that I'm working with now is helping people to think you know, what if information sharing, what if we thought of that as being a patriotic act, that we took it that seriously? And what do we want to know? What do we want to be able to do with that kind of thing? And so instead of just looking at media in general and accepting it for what it is, and, you know, maybe part of what the core principles say is we're going to ask questions and the core principles and key questions that go with them were put together by people who were in the field for quite a while who said, you know, if you really want to analyze media, here are some categories of questions that are important to ask. So the specific question isn't nearly as important as learning to ask in certain categories. So we ask about authorship, you know, who made this. We ask about purposes, and we always ask it in the plural because there are always multiple purposes. So for little kids, instead of asking, well, why was this made, we might ask, well, what does this want me to do? That's more concrete. They can understand it more. In a more sophisticated way, we ask questions about impact, like who benefits, who's harmed. I think that's one people should always ask. I agree. Um, whose voice is privileged and whose is silenced? So who's being represented here and who's being left out? Those are pretty critical questions that we always ought to be asking of the media that we're looking at. I agree. One of my favorite media literacy questions is what is left out? Who is left out of this message? And it's amazing how much those answers will mushroom in terms of creating a much 
larger and meaningful conversation, whether we're talking about politics or technology, um, food, health, any number of topics. Well, okay. Also, one of the hardest questions to answer, by the way, because it requires kind of prior knowledge. If you just look at a sentence and you think, well, yeah, that sounds right to me, then you kind of move on, unless you know something about the topic that you're looking at, and then you think, hmm, maybe that doesn't quite make sense. That's only telling one side of the story. And so there's a a way around that, since we can't possibly be expert on everything, on important issues to you, always check multiple sources. And then you'll know whether people are leaving certain things out because you'll see questions that other people in the field, other people who are writing about the same thing, are saying or asking. Right. It gets complicated. (laughs) An easy way to define media literacy, I think, it was also presented in one of your webinars, is this idea of being able to access media, analyze it, evaluate it, and create it. And I think that gives people a central focus on which to really digest what media literacy is and think about it in terms of critical thinking moving forward. One of the things you mentioned earlier in our conversation was that the media world that we live in today is vastly different than the media world we lived in 30 years ago. So I remember when my children were young, and they're in their 30s now, really the only media that I had to navigate with them were maybe some video games and television. And now I saw some statistics that you shared that 65% of children start using their parents' devices before age three. And by eight, 20% have their own phones and 71 have their own tablets. And you ask people to rate this, you know, is this scary, reality, or opportunity? It's probably a little of all three, isn't it? I think it is. And, I, you know, different people kind of weight those options differently. I guess I tend to mostly approach this as this is the world we live in. It's not going to change. And so we need to figure out how do we maintain healthy lives, balanced lives within this. And media literacy is going to be really critical to figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons that a lot of us are really beginning to ramp up the call for universal media literacy education in our schools. I agree. And I also thought it was interesting. I remember a, a, a lecture or a, a workshop that you gave. This is probably 10, 15 years ago. And you spoke about how education is never a game of keep away. And yet the public health community, myself included, often comes at media use or looks at media use as we really need to limit this because it's marketing things to make kids want to eat more junk food. It's keeping them usually in a relatively sedentary position. There are organizations that have looked at the impact on violence, anxiety, ADHD. So my position has always been we do want to limit it, but we've got to balance it. And you said we need to start media literacy education when exposure to media starts. Right. So here's the thing. It's not that we don't want to be concerned about all the things you just talked about. We have to. I, I, you know, it's, it's really important to do that. What I do is step back from that and say, okay, that gives me an education challenge. And then I say, okay, so how do we start designing education to deal with that world 
and get to the same goal. I mean, you know, we all have a goal. We want kids to eat healthy, say. It's an important goal. We want them to know what good, healthy, nutritious food looks like and what decent portion size looks like, all of that. But if we do it by saying, I'm going to keep you away from all of the places that I think misinformation about that might be, then the kids might not be exposed, but they're also not getting any skills. And at some point, they will be exposed, and then they're not going to have the skills to deal with it. So one of the things that we do is replace the lecturing version of, oh, look at all these sugary cereals. Now things like, that are called things like golden snacks. Well, when we were growing up, they were sugar snacks, right? You know, they were... <laughs> It's harder to tell now. They try to disguise it more, but it's still there. And instead of just saying, these are sugared cereals, they're candy, they're bad for you, what if instead we look at a cereal box as communication, a form of communication, and then teach kids how to read it? So we teach kids clues. And in terms of sugar content, we can teach even very young children that there are about half a dozen clues that they can look for to tell whether there is a lot of sugar inside without ever having to say, don't eat this or it's bad for you. Just here's how to tell if there's a lot of sugar inside. And their clues are things like if there are sparkles on the box, if it uses the word frosted or honey, if it has marshmallows in it, if it uses words like fruity or fruit-flavored or it has a picture of fruit but there isn't actually fruit inside the box. Those are all clues that something has a lot of sugar in it. Then we can teach actual science and nutrition lessons about sugar and how much you should have or not have and things like that. But we're not putting value judgments then if, you know, so that we're not in the classroom, say, undermining what a parent is doing or telling a kid basically, you know, your, your parent is doing something bad to you. We don't want, ever want to convey that information. But we want to give them skills to be able to cope and know, and that way they can go to the cereal aisle themselves, and now they have the skills to identify without, the, you know, having to read nutrition labels, which for young kids is really important because they don't have the skills to read nutrition labels yet. Right. Excellent points. Now, I want to share something with our listeners that you shared with uh, Media Literacy Listserv, and it had to do with research that showed that providing students with more political knowledge, and we could really insert anything there, just strengthened the likelihood that they would rate as accurate posts and news stories that affirmed their previous thinking. But even a little bit of media literacy education significantly increased the likelihood that they could identify fake news and distinguish between accurate content and misinformation. And this idea of fake news has been in the media, not like it's really news, right? We've been talking about fake news for a long time. Exactly. But I thought that this was such an important point to make because it was hopeful. I actually do have a lot of hope about this. I've seen the impact of media literacy education. I know it can make a difference. It's nice to have research that backs it up. And it's really, it's a pretty simple concept in this particular study where they said, yeah, you know, students who were really politically well-informed looked at this stuff and, and they were just looking at it for political content. And when they found political content they liked, they thought, oh, that must be accurate. Instead, what media literacy did in this study was to simply say, you know, everything, you know, here are ways to look. It might not always be accurate. You can look for these inaccuracies. And, and just that little bit, I mean, these weren't students who had tons of media literacy education, just a little bit, just that knowledge in their heads of saying, hmm, 
you know, maybe there are some questions I should be asking about this. Maybe I ought to go to someplace like Snopes.com and check the veracity of this claim. It made a huge difference in how they looked at information. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the influx of commercial influence in the classroom, perhaps industry-funded or even industry-written curricula, and the effect on teachers. I believe I read an article that showed that teachers who receive, say, funding or educational materials of whatever sort from a commercial interest will teach differently in the classroom. I think that came from the National Education Policy Center in Colorado, which is a wonderful resource as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we as parents and any teachers listening navigate those commercial influences in the classroom. Well, the first thing is always asking the authorship question. So who is the author? Who do they work for? Who's making money from this? Who stands to benefit? So it's going back to that benefit and harm kind of things. So whose interests are served by claiming that this is true? I think they can also look for what I call patterns of distraction. So it's kind of the deflection. So you know, you're, you're looking at a, a food producer who is challenged on using genetically modified ingredients, but they'll shift to the, the conversation to how great it is that they have more fiber content because they're using whole grains. Or they'll look at a term like organic and say, oh, it's not really more nutritious which might actually be accurate, except that that's what, not what the critique was. The critique was about, is it healthier for the environment? Is it healthier for workers? Is it sustainable? You know, all of those other kinds of things. Oh, no, we don't want to talk about those. So look for those distractions and then just keep asking questions and more questions and more questions. Yeah. And that also gets back to that what's missing piece and finding multiple sources and hoping that our students will be able to weigh who is presenting the information. It, it's not always as clear as we might think. Right. I remember the first time my daughter brought home a textbook from college, and I noticed that the math in it had branded candies that they were using. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's an influx of commercial products even in a college math textbook. And part of it is just being observant, noticing those kinds of things. Because once you notice them and you're media literate, it's impossible not to read them. It's like once you learn how to read print, you can't ever look at those little squiggles on a page and not have your brain make sense of them. Our brains just don't work that way. So it's the same thing here. If we can get people in the habit of noticing these things and we've trained them with this filter of habits of inquiry, then those questions occur to you almost immediately. Exactly. It makes a difference. Now, we just have a minute left, which isn't very fair to you, but I will just ask you if there's anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with. I think at this point, what I really want to urge people to do is figure out how to support universal media literacy education in your school district. I think this is a period of time, especially with all the fake news things that have been coming up and how important that is to democracy and how important it is to sustaining a healthy world that we need to really make sure that this is being taught in every school at every grade level, and not as um, an opponent to your school, but working with your school and with your teachers to see how we can make this happen. And we can find more information on that at your excellent website, which is www.insiderseducation.com. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo, media literacy educator, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for your time, Dr. Rogo. Thanks for having me. Thank you.